Greetings, church family. It's hard to believe that this is the eighth consecutive Sunday that we've been unable to meet as a result of this COVID-19 virus. We praise the Lord that the virus has done far less damage to the population than we had feared it might. Of course, we have great concerns for the safety of our congregation and the well-being of the people of our community. But we are also very committed to worshiping God in the ways that he has commanded us to worship him. The most recent announcement from Governor Newsom and the Contra Costa County Health Advisory Committee have extended the terms of the sheltering order to at least May 31st, and we've been told to prepare ourselves for an even longer layout in regards to when churches can begin to meet again. While we are very grateful that internet resources such as Zoom and Fimeo exist and have given us the opportunity to stay connected to a degree and to communicate the word of God, his command to us is to be the literal church, not the virtual church. Meeting together is an essential component of who we are. Your elders are concerned that these directives are overlooking our constitutional rights to worship according to our conscience and in obedience to the scripture. We're still praying about the right course of action we should take, if any, but we thank you very much for your prayers and especially if you joined us yesterday for our day of fasting and prayer. Um, that is how God's people deal with crisis like that. We pray, we seek the counsel of God's word, we respond to the Lord in obedience, amen? And so we're grateful that so many of our people joined in fasting and in prayer yesterday. And we hope that that will settle our minds on him. And we're confident that God will lead us to take the right steps that are necessary in order to honor him and at the same time to protect the health of our people. We encourage you to keep an eye out for a more in-depth video that we hope to publish this week that will talk in a little bit more detail about some of the, the difficult challenges that this is presenting to your church and how we hope to respond to that. But in the meantime, we have gathered together to get into God's Word. So why don't you open up to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Our time in God's Word this morning is a continuation of the theme that chapter 11 was focusing on last week. The importance of worshiping God through the full range of our lives. Last week, Solomon concentrated more on the youthful years of our existence. We were urged by Solomon not to let the prime of our lives go to waste. He gave us permission to enjoy the pleasures of life's earlier stages. But he cautioned us not to be so foolish as to think that any joy in this life can be had apart from the perfect judgment of God who oversees all things. Therefore, serve God while you are young. Give your life to the king and offer him the first fruits of your being as a living sacrifice to him. Now, in the opening verses of chapter 12, Solomon will now examine the opposite side of the coin. Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 8, describes to us the body in its decline, the transitional state of life as a person marches away from their youth and through the dangerous gauntlet of old age. So we're going to be reading eight verses today, starting with verse 1 of chapter 12. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent 
and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Let's take a moment and address the Lord in prayer before we begin to talk about what this passage means for us today. Lord God, your word is beautiful. The way that you express to us the details of the human condition, it helps us to understand that you understand us, that you know us top to bottom, Lord God, that we are not strangers to you, that you don't have to learn about us, God. You are the great designer and architect of human life. No one understands the process of life and dying more than you do. And so I pray, Lord God, that as we come before you humbly, that we would come ready to learn from you. We get a peek inside of the mind of the one who made us. And so, God, as we open your word, let us see what you have to share with us today. Let us be intent to not overlay our own ideas or thoughts upon this passage, but to bring forth what you have put into it. I pray, Lord God, that we would rejoice in life, but that we would also understand its limits and that we would know, Lord God, that you are over it all. And so we praise you and glorify you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Teach us, disciple us today in his name. Amen. Chapter 12 opens with a command. Here we are told to remember the one who made us, to remember him in the prime of our lives, before our earthly bodies begin to crumble, and the reality of the fall of man and its consequences begin to press in upon us. To remember here goes beyond simply bringing something to mind. When when we remember God properly, it must result in an active obedience to Him. What a blessing it is to know that God never forgets His people, that He remembers us in active ways, in ways that result in our blessing and in our benefit. Consider the story of Hannah. Hannah is a woman that we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 1. She's a woman afflicted with a heartbreaking disability. Hannah was physically unable to bear children for her husband, Elkanah. She has been mocked and derided by others for this limitation. And 1 Samuel 1 is not the first time she has poured her heart out to God. But verses 9 through 18 tell us that on one particular occasion, as Hannah approached the temple to worship the Lord that she cried out in a very passionate way to her God. And so 1 Samuel 1.11, And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. 
prayers and the lament that she lifted up to her creator were so passionate that the priest, Eli, who saw her there and heard her, accused her of being drunk. But Hannah was not drunk. She was only intoxicated with sorrow. She pled with the Lord that day. She promised that if God were to remember her, and notice how she expresses this remembrance, if he would respond gracefully to her by blessing her with a child, that she would respond by giving that child back to the one true God in a life of servanthood. She said that a razor would not touch that child's head, which was an indication that she intended to make the vow of the, the Nazarite for him, which was a dedication for service. A person who was a Nazarite was set apart for special service unto God. And so we read in verse 19 of 1 Samuel 1, they rose early in the morning and they worshiped before the Lord. And then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Do you see how that word is used? When God remembered Hannah, does that mean that he casually acknowledged her cries? Does it simply mean that God never forget how she prayed to him that day? God never forgets anything, right? When God remembered Hannah, it was something far more than just mental recall. He responded actively to her cries. 1 Samuel 1.20, And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. See, God remembered Hannah, and he did so by miraculously providing a child for her. The womb which was closed suddenly became open, and God's active blessing fell upon his humble servant. We see language like this throughout the word of God. When we are told to remember our creator, Solomon is telling us that not only do we want to keep him in mind, but that the presence of God in our minds and in our thoughts and in our hearts should result in a life that is lived in constant worship and obedience to the Lord Almighty. And as we saw in last week's study, it is a serious mistake to wait until the very last stages of our life before we remember the goodness and the grace of God and finally surrender ourselves to Him in a worshipful way. From the moment our conscience is awakened to the darkness of our own sin, from the instance that we see our need for a Savior and come to the great realization and understanding that God alone can provide that Savior for us and does so through His Son, Jesus Christ, from that moment forward, let us remember our God let us hear his commands to us as we read the pages of Holy Scripture. And let us actively worship to the praise of his glory. And there are practical advantages to giving ourselves in worship to the Lord at a very young age, aren't there? The sooner we begin to worship the Lord, the more time we can spend watching him work in our lives. The sooner we begin to worship the Lord, the better chance we have of avoiding the pitfalls of sin which our loving Father desires to preserve us from. And I think we can be honest with one another here. The younger stages of our lives are times when we have more power to serve Him, more freedom to do the things that He calls us to do, more energy to pursue holiness and to glorify His name. Doesn't the Lord deserve the best that we have to give to Him? Isn't he worthy of more than what is left over of our life after we have wrung all of the pleasure and enjoyment we can out of it? 
When I was uh, younger, my brother was only 17 at the time, I was 19. My brother and his girlfriend were surprised one day to find out that they would soon be parents. Their whole world changed in an instant with that news. They suddenly needed to grow up. They could not continue uh, being young and carefree. They knew that now there was going to be a little life in their hands. And so suddenly they had to get things in order. They had to begin to, to, to find an income to su support this child. And so to my brother's credit, he, he went right to work. He went out and found a job right away. But there were many complications to this. He didn't have transportation. My brother did not have a car yet. Someone in the church heard about his situation. They had just replaced their second car with a brand new car. And they decided to give their old car to my little brother. He became the proud owner of a Root Beer Brown 1981 Toyota Corolla station wagon with 300,000 miles on the odometer. Now, don't get me wrong. He was grateful for the gift. That was an act of love, and he hadn't done anything to deserve it. But with that many miles on the odometer, Toyota or not, it was a gift in the very loosest sense of the word. The front tires shook violently over 55 miles per hour in that car. The AC had not worked for years. You had to hold the shifter into first gear as you drove the car or else it would pop right out. The list goes on and on and on. This was a car that had already given almost all that it had to give. It ran for about another 3,000 miles before one of the pistons literally just crumbled apart and the car needed a new engine. Now some people, without really even thinking about it, are intent to give a similar offering to the Lord, to God in whom there is no sin, to a God who is holy and pure, to a God that we owe everything to. They are not interested in giving God the prime of their life. They consider it a better strategy to spend their most vibrant years on themselves. And then when they begin to grow gray and the mileage has been racked up on their earthen vessel, on their body, and they can't experience life with the same pleasure and vibrance that they used to, then, then they will turn their life over to the Lord. Church, he deserves so much better than that, doesn't he? Doesn't God deserve the best that we have to give to him? Let us give him our best. Let us love him and serve him with our first fruits, with the best that our life has to offer, as well as the later ones. Though Solomon reminds us here that time will eventually begin to have a very negative impact on the quality of life that we get to experience here on earth. The latter stages of life are, are titled here in chapter 12, the evil days. This is meant to be a contrast to the end of chapter 11, where Solomon encouraged the young to enjoy the blessings of life while they can, that it was good to look upon the sun and its light. The latter years are described here as evil because they are not as easy to enjoy as the years that came before. Verse 2 begins a long metaphorical poem artistically describing the conditions of advanced age. Now, I do not want us to get too wrapped up this morning in interpreting this poem allegorically, although we will benefit to some degree by looking at what the symbols mean. 
The point of the passage is not to give us a very detailed, academic, step-by-step rundown of how we will age, as how we will get older. Rather, Solomon is ruminating here on the often slow and potentially discouraging failure of our flesh. This body that you call your own, it is not the long-term resting place for your spirit. You have no doubt become attached to the body that you reside in, though we no doubt all have a bit of a love-hate relationship with our earthly vessel. The one thing we know for sure about our body is that it will eventually meet its end. How do we deal with that end? How much fear does that put us in? How much regret will we experience when the body can no longer do what it was once capable of doing? These questions should be on our minds as Solomon artistically walks us through this stage of life. Now, not all scholars agree about the best way to break this poem down, but I believe it will help us the most to see verse 2 as an introductory metaphor that gracefully then transitions into a second, more extended metaphor, starting with verse 3, that's going to travel along the same theme and ideas as verse 2 began us in. So verse 2, the old age of man falls upon us like the ominous signs of a coming storm. The sun and the light and the moon and the stars, they all represent the goodness and the enjoyment of life here on earth. And yet as time goes on and our bodies begin to extend past the limits of their usefulness, the cloud of physical problems begins to cover these sources of light. And it becomes more and more difficult to find joy in our earthly bodies. Now, the onset of this cloudy darkness could be the first of many references to the most common breakdown that typically accompanies old age, and that is our loss of sight. Our vision is often one of the very first things to decline as we get older. And so as a man or a woman ages, they begin to see and perceive the world around them with less clarity and vibrance. The light that our brain processes into images grows somewhat dim. And the ability to enjoy what we see is hindered. Solomon makes mention of the clouds returning after the rain. And that speaks to the fact that as we grow old, the problems of life in a mortal human body grow more frequent and often more serious. Youth, no doubt, has its afflictions. No one is invincible. And from time to time, a young person pushes their body too hard and has to endure the weary encumbrance of a cast from a broken limb or has to put up with a bad sunburn that they got from playing out in the sun too long or any other number of temporary inconveniences. But when we grow advanced in age, it seems as if the resolution of one physical problem only transitions seamlessly into the next challenge of old age. Just when we think the storm is over, the clouds gather again and block out the light and we have a new malady that we have to contend with. And so I wake up with a stiff back. And though I don't remember doing anything too crazy that would cause it to be injured, it's keeping me from accomplishing even the simplest of tasks. I hobble around. I avoid activity. I don't lift up any heavy weights. And so as I hobble through it, modifying my routine and trying to give it rest, it starts to get a little bit better. Eventually, I begin to feel almost like I'm healed again. The storm begins to clear But it seems that in compensating for my back, I have managed to injure my hip. 
Here comes the storm clouds once again. And thus is the rhythm of life in an older body. Just when you think you're in the clear, some new unexpected challenge pops up that you have to contend with again. The elderly grow accustomed to fighting a war with several fronts when it comes to their personal health. They can scarcely celebrate recovering from one problem before another seems to pop right up. And so begins this succession of images that Solomon will use to highlight the mortality of mankind and the physical decline that comes with aging. So we begin with verses 3 and 4. And the imagery is shifting here. We are no longer talking primarily about a storm. Now our bodily decline is compared to the demise of an aging estate, a home that was once a grand residence but is slowly falling apart as time begins to take its toll. Again, we don't have to become too dogmatic about what each of these symbols might correlate to. I have included a little chart in your notes if you want to make some little helpful notes about what things may or may not mean, but you don't have to fill that out if you don't want to. The impression is what needs to stick with us. Solomon, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, is soon going to wrap up his sermon on the meaninglessness of life. And along the way, he has gone to great lengths to make sure we don't walk away from this sermon without a humble, grounded understanding that there must be more to life than what we experience here on earth. Life is only vanity, meaning meaningless, if this is all we see and all we account for. The meaning of life comes from looking beyond the sun. And that point is emphatically reinforced here as we review the unavoidable weakening of our physical bodies. So let's look at some of these images. The keepers of the house are described as trembling. And this could metaphorically refer to uh, the arms and the hands, what we often use to keep our house in order. As a person grows older, they typically lose control over their hands. The trembling that can result from older age can keep one from effectively doing many of the tasks that they used to enjoy doing before. The strong men are, are bent, and this could describe to us either our legs or our back, two components of the physical body which support the rest of our mass and help us to be able to stand upright and to move around. But once a man becomes old or once a woman gets into those aged stages of life, then those legs can become more and more bent. The back can start to resemble more of a question mark and it can hinder our activities. The grinders cease because they are few. Now what might these grinders represent? It's talking about more than likely are pearly whites, the teeth that the elderly often lose as time goes on. Because those teeth are becoming more and more rare in the mouth, then the diet has to change to accommodate the fact that grinding is no longer a practical activity. Those who look through windows are dimmed. And this is talking about our eyes, that we look out onto the world and we can no longer see with the clarity that we used to see. The doors on the street are shut. Perhaps this speaks of our ears and how as we get advanced in age, the components which cause us to translate the vibrations in the air as audible sounds that can be interpreted, they begin to become numbed. We can't hear as well. We've got to turn the volume up on the TV and we have to ask people to repeat themselves over and over again because the doors on the street are shut. Our ability to interact with one another becomes limited by our lack of clarity in hearing. 
The sound of grinding is low. This might refer to the fact that often a, a common thing that you would hear in a household back in those days was the grinding of meal, some productive activity that caused a, a loud noise to occur. But, but when our strength begins to fa- fail us, we can no longer do the productive labor that we used to participate in. As much as our hearing might be fleeing and, and falling away from us, ironically, sleep is rather shallow. The sound of a bird in the early morning hours is enough to stir an older f- person who is struggling to get enough sleep. The daughters of song are brought low. And this could be talking about our ability to sing and to make music, which can become diminished with age. And uh, that's a big part of the life of somebody, especially who follows after the Lord God, because singing praise to him is something he's commanded us to do. I remember uh, visiting an elderly gentleman I made an acquaintance with. He was a jazz musician and played blues guitar beautifully in his prime. But by the time that I met him, he was no longer in his prime. Things were more difficult for him. And though he had a number of beautiful guitars, all of which I'm sure he handled masterfully in his heyday, I was able to hear some of his old records, some of the recordings that he had made as a professional artist. By this time, his hands had grown quite knotted. The wear and tear of arthritis had set in. And his fingers no longer did the things that his mind commanded them to do. And he tried to play some songs for me. And it was, it was difficult to listen to him knowing in his mind what he needed to do to form a chord and to play a riff, but not being able to make those things translate into actual sound. The daughters of song are often brought low in old age. The elderly, we are told in verse 5, are now afraid of what is on high. What that's talking about is the fact that as we grow older, often our balance eludes us. We might have to walk with a cane, and typically that means we don't want to be up in higher places where a fall could create a serious injury to our bodies. This corresponds with something a little bit later on in the metaphor where the grasshopper is dragging along, a grasshopper who's walking along on the ground and not sailing through the air like they so often do, sometimes resembles an older person who is walking with a cane and has an exaggerated gait. Terrors are on the way, we are told. It speaks of the anxieties that increase in an older person's heart and mind as they worry about what's going to happen to their worldly goods as their life comes to an end. Who's going to enjoy their estate? Will things be put in order enough that they'll be laid to rest and taken care of? And the almond tree is described as having blossomed. Our property here at the church is full of almond trees. And you know that in the springtime, when those trees begin to come to life again after a winter rest, that the white blossoms of those trees will will be a sight to behold. And as we grow older in age, those who still enjoy a head of hair will often see the color fade away to white. And then perhaps the greatest lament on the list comes last. The idea that when we approach the end of our journey here on earth, that the desire of life begins to fail. A passion for waking up each day and experiencing the new things that lie ahead is is often diminished or even absent. Flavors don't pop in our mouth Like they used to, the sensations are no longer trustworthy. Our our senses are not always giving us a good read on what's going on in the world around us. There isn't that vibrant drive of ambition, that ability 
to do good things has waned, and so now we don't really dream as much as we used to because we don't think we can back it up with our body. And so the vibrance of life fades, and one can sometimes even decline to a simple existence. The thrust of this extended metaphor is clear if we consider the context of last week's sermon. The wages of sin is death. There is no way around that. The scripture doesn't tell us a lie here. And even if we count ourselves as one of the lucky ones who seems to defy the aging process and keep our senses and our physical abilities and our good looks much longer than the average person, eventually the estate is going to wear out. And we're faced with the facts. Life isn't very meaningful if this is all there is. And the grand finale of life isn't much of a crescendo if the grave is all we have to look forward to. Thankfully, friends, there is more. Verses 6 and 7 are essentially different ways of describing the act of death. And in his artistic way, Solomon gives us two sort of metaphors here. A loss of something beautiful is described as a silver cord which holds a bowl made of gold snaps. The cord is useless now and the golden bowl hits the ground and shatters and is now useless as well. And then he describes the loss of something useful. The pitcher is shattered at the fountain, talking about a well where a person might go and attach a pitcher to a rope. There is often a wheel which allows them to reel that bowl down into the well to retrieve water. But when the pitcher is shattered, there is no water to be gotten. And when the wheel is broken, you cannot lower it down and effectively pull it up again. So life will eventually come to its end. Though beautiful, its beauty will cease. Though useful, its usefulness will come to an end. But notice the refrain there in verses 6 and 7. It says, before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the fountain and the wheel is broken at the cistern. In other words, Solomon continues to urge us that there is still time. As long as there is a spirit within us, as long as we are drawing air, there is time to turn our gaze to the Lord. And no matter what age you are right now, if you have not yet looked upon the Lord, if you have not found meaning in the greater truth of the one who is beyond the sun, then now is the time to do so. Verse 7 says, Dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. The dust is a direct reference to the physical body that once dead will decompose and return its matter to the soil. We see that in Genesis and Job and Psalm. Throughout the scripture, we see these references to our physical body returning to the dust from whence God shaped it with his own hands and breathed life into it. The body returns to dust, but the spirit does not. The spirit of man does not follow the body to the grave. Solomon here suggests that the spirit of man returns to the Lord. And I rather think that this leaves the door open to the idea of the soul continuing on. And it is the very point that has the power to turn the vanity of verse 8 from meaninglessness into a different meaning altogether, as we spoke about last week. That the word translated as vanity in most of our English translations can also be considered vapor which would indicate not necessarily meaninglessness, but transition. That this life is a segue into the life that truly, truly matters. The thing that God has revealed to us in the new covenant 
can actually make us grateful that the earthly estate of our physical body will one day wither and pass away. Why? Let us listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 50. The Apostle Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the immortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying as it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, what do we learn here in this passage from the letter to the Corinthian church? We learn that our flesh and our blood, corrupted as it is by sin, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We cannot hope to attain to heaven if we stay in these broken earthly vessels. We've got to be willing to let go of this shell. And it will do us no good in the life to come because where we are headed to, if Christ is ours and we belong to Christ... This earthly body will do us no good. When the trumpet sounds, we will know that the time has come for God to render judgment over all of his creation once and for all. Every human being will be changed on that day in one of two ways. When God comes to judge sin and to rid his creation of it, we will all be transformed in one of two ways. The outcome is entirely dependent upon whether you are in Adam or in Christ. Do you recall last week's conversation about this? As we all descend from Adam, the first man, he was a representative over us when he acted in covenant with God in the Garden of Eden. The Lord God gave Adam and Eve a covenant of works. Do this and live. Break this law and your life will be taken away from you. In so much as they dwelt in the garden, the tree of life kept them alive. And they did not have to experience the de degradation of the flesh as Solomon described here in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. But the moment that they disregarded the leadership of God and chose instead to think of their own definition of right and wrong rather than knowing God and trusting that he was the one who defined what was right and wrong, as soon as they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they broke the covenant and death entered in to the creation. Friends, that death is why we decline. It is why metal rusts. It is why fruit falls off of the ground and rots into the soil. It is the reason why we don't live forever in this current state. And it is the reason why this current state must eventually come to pass. We cannot stay in these earthen vessels. Death must happen. It is a fulfillment of our sin. But we are so grateful to know 
as new covenant believers, that something stronger than death has manifested itself. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, came and took on a human body and dwelt with sinners like us. He did so at the same time able to preserve himself from every sin which afflicts us. Jesus never broke the law of God. He honored him in every word, in every thought, in every deed. And he did so so that the law would be satisfied in his life. And then Jesus Christ, because of his great love for God's people, went to a cross and willingly allowed himself to be put to death like a criminal so that the sins of the world, the sins of God's people could be heaped upon his broad shoulders that he might put them to death through his suffering on the cross. And then once his flesh yearned and groaned as a sinner's flesh should, once he experienced the suffering of death and breathed his last, that the penalty that we owe to God would be paid in full, that the wages of sin would be fully compensated for by the death of Christ. And God didn't stop there. On the third day, he rose Jesus from the dead so that death, which to the average person in the world is the greatest enemy, would no longer hold any power or sting over the people of God. Those who trust in Jesus Christ and his work have been removed from Adam and are now in the Son of God. We reside in his promise. We have entered into a new, better covenant, one that will not be fulfilled by the works of man, but will be fulfilled by the work of God himself through Christ. What a joy we have to know that the death which is a dead end for so many in heart and mind is only a doorway into eternal life for those who are called after Christ. Of course, if you do not trust the Bible as the authoritative word of God, then you may have your own creative views of what may happen after we die. There are no shortage of theories. Here's a few of the more popular ones. Some believe that we die and that's it. The game is over. That there is no more experience. That whatever time you spend here on this earth, that sums up the total of your person. And that your death stops not only your breath, but your being. Others believe that we leave the world and return to the world as some other form of life. Maybe we get a slight upgrade if we've been good. If we've been thoughtful to others, maybe we get a downgrade if our life has a a sum total of hatred and selfishness and inconsideration. So some people believe you're just recycled, essentially. Others take the optimistic view that we all just get perfection. That when this life is over, no matter what you've done, no matter who you've hurt, no matter how much you've broken the law of God, that, that the Lord just simply says, come and gather to me, you're all my children Let's all just spend the rest of eternity in perfection. But each of these very popular views is incompatible with what God has revealed to us in his word. Life is full of fairy tales. But here's the stark reality. Death is no fairy tale. You can make up your own ending to life and believe it if you want but there's a huge problem and a huge risk associated with that. If you are wrong about what happens after this life is over, then what awaits you? The scripture declares it, that damnation and punishment are what we look forward to, 
if we do not have the love of Christ protecting us. If we decide to write the end of our story for ourselves, instead of looking unto the God who owns all things and is sovereign over all things, then we have no hope for the future. Our fantasy of what may happen after life must be surrendered to the reality that God has revealed to us in his holy word. Some of you have experienced parts of the poem that Solomon shared with us today. You're far along enough in your journey that you can relate to the grasshopper and how he walks, that, that you wish the doors were open so that you could hear better what was going on. Perhaps you've experienced some of that. But for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, the demise of the body does not equate to tragedy. God has promised that for those who are in Christ, a better body awaits. We must get rid of what is mortal so that we can clothe our spirit in what is immortal. In this perfected body, which is completely free of the stains that Adam brought onto it. We need a body that is fit for heaven, friends. One that will serve our spirit for eternity. This is the promise that removes the sting from death and helps us to realize that the inevitability of our physical decline, while it may be humbling, while it may be quite uncomfortable, does not have to burden our hearts too badly. If we are in Christ, we have the promise of new life to look forward to. We need only wait the transition. Let me leave you with one more encouragement. If you are somewhere along the process of this physical decline, do not write off the value of your worship to God. Even now, even in the twilight of life, when your abilities are, are severely limited, you might not be able to worship the Lord with the kind of strength and vitality that you wish you could or that you did one day before. But the truth is that our worship has never been perfect worship. No matter how young you were, no matter how strong, no matter how wise, no matter how clearly you thought you saw the world, whatever gift we have to give to God doesn't come close to what he deserves from us. Our worship has never been perfect. It has never been what he deserves. We don't have the capacity to give him flawless praise. So friends, just give him what you have. Just give the Lord God what he has given to you to give back to him. In the first chapter of Mark, we see the disciples gathered around and Simon Peter's mother-in-law is there and she's, I'm assuming, advanced in age and she has fallen very ill. She has a severe fever and Jesus heals her. And I love what it says right after it. In this account and also in the account in, in Matthew, it records that she doesn't shuffle off and take a nap. She turns around and she begins to serve the people who had gathered. She shows them hospitality. She loves them. She does what she can do. The fever had been limiting her and now that God has given her a respite in her health, she feels compelled to use this break in the storm to serve the brothers and sisters that had gathered there that day. Isn't that beautiful? We see it on the other end of the spectrum as well with a young person, the little boy who came to hear Jesus preach in the countryside. He didn't have a feast to share with the other 5,000 people who were gathered there that day to hear the truth. But he gave to the disciples his two fish, and his few little loaves. And the boy 
and his faithfulness gave the tools by which God and his power made a grand feast and fed thousands upon thousands of people. He didn't have enough for everybody. He just gave what he had. The widow who approached the temple to offer a gift to God's work, she had nearly nothing. She was financially destitute, but she gave her two mites and Jesus commended her sacrifice because it was all that she had. Nothing of good use could be bought for that two mites. What mattered was the heart that desired to give to the Lord God and Christ was pleased to see this woman giving what she had. There will be times when the limits of your body make you feel as though you have nothing of value to give to the Lord. No useful service. But if you have a mind that's sharp enough to identify the wretchedness of your state, then you have a mind that is sharp enough to, in prayer, offer up supplication for your brothers and sisters. In prayer, to ask that God would glorify himself in his church and in this world. In prayer, to beg that the lost would come to the light and have hope that when their mortal coil begins to shrivel, that they don't have to see that as the end, that they can see that as the gateway into an eternity with the God who designed their intricate physical body and has a better one waiting for them on the other side. Friend, our, our worship will always fall short of what God deserves. And that is because the object of our worship is so incredibly great. The God that we worship is awesome beyond measure. May we never let our feeble worship keep us from giving him whatever praise we have to give. Serve him with your youth. Serve him with your senility. Serve him with whatever part of life he has called you to right now. When the time is right, the Lord will trade your disposable body for an eternal one so that your worship can resound to him forever. Let us pray together. God, we thank you for being a God who is greater than death. You are the author of life. You are the architect and the finisher of our faith. So Lord God, I pray that this sermon was helpful to us as we consider the limits of our earthly vessel here on earth, as we consider the fact that these bodies that you have given to us now, infected by sin as they are, are not what you intend for us to dwell in forever. God, let us not become too attached to these temporary tents as Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 5 describes them. God, help us instead to think about the glory of our eternal dwelling place. Let us think about the wonderful joy of coming together with you in the new heavens and the new earth which have been made one by your grace in the time to come. We praise you, Lord, that, that you would humble us in this reality. That as we go through the final stages, even if they are difficult, God, that you would give us a resilience, that you would give us a courage in you, that the world would see our faith, faith that is grounded in the one trustworthy source. You, Lord God, will never fail us. And even if our, our heart and our flesh may fail, you are strength and a portion for us forever. So God, we thank you for your love and we pray that we would continue to worship you as this day and the rest of the week unfolds. May you come quickly, Lord God, but as long as you tarry, God, give us the freedom to worship you with all that we have, however great or little that might be. And we give it all to you through Jesus Christ. In his holy name we pray, amen.